1: Hello everyone. And welcome to another episode of fertility docs uncensored. I am Dr. Carrie Beating of the fertility center of Las Vegas, and I am joined by my uh, stunning scintillating sexy sirens of science. Wow. Woo-hoo! Dr. Fred Hudson of Texas fertility center. <laughs> Hello, Carrie. And Dr. Abby Eblen of Nashville fertility center. How are you both doing today?
0: Wow, I feel like a siren today. I don't know why. I worked hard on that. I will have you know. That was impressive, Carrie. I am very much impressed. You're raising the bar for the introduction now, unfortunately. (laughs) I'm going to have to come up with something more exciting than my usual introductions. So how are you guys doing?
1: And are you excited
0: about our upcoming trip where we actually get to see each other? I was thinking about that the other day. We're going to Baltimore, Maryland to our Fertility Society meeting. It's known as the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. or We call it ASRM lovingly. And we actually get to see each other. It's going to be so much fun. I'm so
2: excited. So for our listeners, this is the first time that we will have seen each other in a year and at
0: least a year and a half eight months. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Since the first six podcasts. Yeah,
2: absolutely. So we're, we're really excited. We see each other quite often, obviously, when we're, when we're doing our zoom calls, but
0: (laughs) it's like talking to your sister on the phone. We talk to our sisters on the phone every few weeks, but we haven't really been in person. So this is going to be great. We're gonna have a lot of fun too. We're going to take some pictures and get to do some changes of of our outfits it's gonna I feel like I'm a model when I'm
1: there. We're gonna start plotting what what happens next and and what our next project is gonna be now that the podcast is kind of settling into its solid groove and it, we're happy with that. So you know forthcoming with with new things, new projects.
2: What's new for fertility docs uncensored?
0: Yeah. The great thing about the meeting too is we're gonna talk to some of the presenters at the meeting and At all these meetings, you know, even though I've been in the field for a long time, it's just amazing, you know, the different directions that people go with their research and kind of what's on the forefront and what's projected to happen in the next five to seven years. And then what do we know now that we didn't know the last time we met? It's just, it's really interesting. The meeting really gives a a lot of good information.
2: I always think it's fun because there's always something that changes every meeting that you didn't realize that it changed (laughs) until everybody's there and they're all using the same buzzword. And my favorite was when PGS went to PGT.
0: Oh, gosh, yes.
2: I promise you, I thought PGT was in every second sentence everybody said. Because they were just trying to get used to it. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. Well, there's pretty much a theme every year of... Yeah, and I remember one of the last ones I went to, one of the big themes was mosaicism. How do you define it? And what does it mean? And do you transfer embryos that are mosaics? And that was like one of the big buzz things that everybody was talking about. So yeah, it'll be really interesting to kind of see what the what the theme is this year. And they always have us um, do poster presentations,
1: God awful, early in the morning. Like they start at 6 a.m. And so you have to be there all dressed up in your little suit and ready to, you know explain whatever and and oral presentations go throughout the day. But I am glad that both of you will be there because I will probably be a squirrel thinking about, okay, I need to give this presentation. I have to get up in front of a bunch of people and talk, which is goofy because that's what I do. Number one, every time we get together for a podcast. Number two, every time I teach the residents, the other residency program or the medical
0: students, but somehow doing it ASRM is a scarier presentation. And I think it's um, it's different too, because you're presenting to, usually it's a friendly audience, but sometimes people kind of want to make themselves known and seen and impress the other people in the audience. And they get up and they ask some really long question that makes really doesn't pertain to what you've done or they ask something that's just really out there and you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And you sort of you have to think on your feet mm-hmm. a little bit more so maybe than we what we normally do because sometimes they can be really challenging questions, I think. So I mean I think it's it's normal to feel a little nervous about those kind of questions, but by and large, most people are pretty nice and ask pretty reasonable questions, I think. Usually. And and the comic strips <laughs> that come out around uh,
1: presenting at academic meetings are always 100% worth it and dead on about the random questions that you might get. But it'll be fine, but I'm awfully glad that you guys are going to be there.
2: Yeah, all kinds of moral support with you, Carrie. Maybe we can be plants to ask nice
0: questions and, you know, we'll, we'll drag the questions out so nobody else has time to ask questions, Carrie. I'm 100% down with that. <laughs> <laughs> All right.
1: So we're going to do a a questions episode um, because we find that if we don't do these periodically, um, we have just so many questions that build up that we can't possibly answer them all. So in an effort to get get as many people good information as we possibly can, we are going to steer, um, steer towards answering some of those questions.
2: All righty. So we're going to start knocking these out. So the first one today is I was told I have a heart-shaped uterus. Can I still do IUI or are there benefits to doing IVF straight away? I am 34 years old and we have been trying for a little over a year.
0: So a heart-shaped uterus could either mean that, well, first, normally the uterus is shaped like a triangle essentially on the inside. An upside down triangle upside down triangle. And so if the top part of the triangle dips a little bit, that's called an arcuate uterus. And generally that really doesn't have any clinical ramifications. It's not something that we would take someone to surgery for. The other type of uterus that's a little bit more severe dip, it goes further down into the cavity is called a septate uterus. And so with those types of uteruses, we worry that there might be a higher risk of miscarriages in the second trimester, You know, if if a patient's been fully evaluated and we don't find anything else, then we say, well, you know, maybe this person's trying to get pregnant and they've got this heart-shaped uterus with this big septum. Maybe we should go ahead and remove that. And so I think it's, you know, there's not really cut and dried scientific knowledge that says you absolutely need to remove it or you absolutely don't need to remove it. But I think most of us would sort of err on the side of removing it. So if you have a heart-shaped uterus, meaning if you have a septum in your uterine cavity, I think most of us would talk to you about having that removed before you have fertility treatment. What do you think, Carrie? Um, Yeah, I would agree.
1: Sept- uh, septum should come out, arcuate. There's not really much you can do about it. Um, I remember we did an episode that focused on this. Um, it was a while ago. It was relatively early on in the podcast. It was with um, my patient, Amanda, who is... Mrs. Nevada, And so we talked a lot about this. She ultimately actually needed a surrogate because she had a very deep cleft in that heart. And so it made for a, a much different kind of situation than perhaps what we're talking about here, because I, I kind of get the impression this is a mild heart-shaped uterus if you're talking about IUI versus IVF. Um, and, and I would kind of agree in that. I think whatever seems reasonable to try makes sense to try because the shape of the uterus in this instance is not going to drive whether you need IUI or IVF.
2: I completely agree. You know, it's one of those things that I think if, if it's something that surgically should be fixed, like a septum, um, usually we don't surgically fix arcuate uteruses unless we just happen to be there already. And bicornuate uteruses, very few people in the United States repair bicornuate uteruses anymore. And that, that's only going to be on a very small proportion of people who have had multiple like second or third trimester losses. I really don't think it necessarily drives you to IUI or IVF. It's whether you need to have surgery or not. And that that's the real question you need to be talking to your doctor about.
1: Mm-hmm. Agreed. All right.
2: All right. Our next question, drum roll, <laughs> are there clinical studies evidence to help me feel confident in the vaccine while trying to conceive, assuming a healthy person of healthy weight and without chronic conditions? And so I'm assuming they are meeting the COVID vaccine.
1: Mm-hmm. So we just had an episode like roughly two episodes ago with Dr. Shannon Ho reviewing COVID in pregnancy and how without the vaccine, there are very distinct bad things that happen. Um, I am not aware of any full clinical studies that talk about conception with the vaccine. That's something that usually comes several years later down the line. Um, But one of the things that we... We have talked about, and, and one of our, our colleagues, uh, one of my colleagues actually in a conversation mentioned was one of the the most clear descriptions of when you're looking at side effects of getting the vaccine versus getting the the disease itself, only one of those lists includes death.
0: Yeah, that says it all right
1: there.
2: And an important thing is that there are other things other than kind of when you're saying studies, I think you're really wanting to know is there published literature okay because as Carrie said, studies are going to come years down the road. but is there published literature that that is showing that it appears to be safe? I would say there there is there are things that are published now um, supporting that. I mean the data is somewhat still limited, but what what definitely is getting published is, the poor outcomes of mother and baby when COVID happens during pregnancy. That's the information you're having to weigh against a smaller amount of data to figure out where where you want to put your risk.
0: When Dr. Ho, when she was here, had mentioned that there's a registry now for the vaccine, and it's now includes about 140,000 women who have been pregnant when they received the vaccine, and that you know they've found really nothing negative or no bad things have happened to those patients that have gotten the vaccine. So, I mean, that's that's a pretty large number of people, 140,000 that have already gotten the vaccine that were pregnant. So, you know, I think I agree with what you said, Carrie, you know, only one of the two options, vaccinated, non-vaccinated, b- vaccinated includes the side effect of death. So yeah. I would err on the side of getting the vaccine.
1: And and the, the last thing to think about is that way back in the beginning, when this vaccine came out, everybody was One of the pieces of misinformation that came out was, oh my gosh, it's really similar to a placental protein and that's going to cause all kinds of problem with fertility. There's really no basis for that. And so there was a lot of people really worried, a lot of people going, oh my gosh, this is going to affect women's fertility. This is, you know, insert your conspiracy theory here. It's an urban
0: legend now.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's no basis to that. And so like, there's plenty of other stuff to worry about. That's not it. Yeah. Like pick and choose your battles. That's not the one that's worth your time.
2: All right. Thank you so much for taking time for this podcast. I love listening to you all. Your podcast has been extremely informative and helpful during this journey. A little background. I am 36 and I have a low AMH of 0.52. And I have learned that I am a carrier of the fragile X gene, but it's low and my tubes are blocked for reasons unknown. Therefore, we are pursuing IVF. Husband has great numbers. We had an egg retrieval scheduled for October 1st. I am curious, what are the chances that we will succeed? How many cycles should we do before considering other options such as an egg donor? So I think what I tell my patients when they have an AMH
0: of 0.52, I've seen some patients do really well, meaning when we start to stimulate them with fertility medicine, they stimulate great and they do really well. Sometimes, unfortunately, when we give patients a maximum amount of medicine really try and push their ovaries to make eggs. Sometimes with 0.52, they don't do anything or they create, you know, they only produce an egg or two. And with IVF, you know, you're going to pay the same for the egg retrieval, whether we get one or two eggs or whether we get 20 eggs. And so, you know, most of us sort of have a number that we would like to at least get. And I think our number is around at Nashville Fertility is around four or five you know, if a patient has less than that, that we think we're going to be able to retrieve, we talk to that patient about, you know, this is going to be make it more tough for you to have a good embryo. Do you really want to go through? And so the first thing that comes to my mind, I mean, there's a lot of other issues, certainly the fact that you're thinking, it sounds like thinking about maybe genetically testing your embryos. That makes it tougher too, because that's even a smaller pool of embryos that we potentially would be able to use and transfer in you. But my first concern just would be, not so much your age, but your AMH is lower than what we would like. And I would just really worry about how well you're going to stimulate. Bottom line is no one's going to know or be able to predict until you start to stimulate, you know, in your cycle. What do you think, Carrie? You know, I would agree with all that. A low AMH is not the only determinant
1: of how well you're going to do. If you've got a ton of eggs available uh, on your antral follicle count, that's a good sign. And so, you know, I, I think that it's worth really kind of going through all the pros and cons because, A lot of this decision is governed by numbers, your AMH, your follicle count, the number of dollars it's going to take to do an IVF cycle. But the key component of this is, do you want to do it and try it with your own eggs or not? And are you going to be able to move on to an egg donor without it? Because not quite universally, but a large percentage of patients are always going to do better using an egg donor. But just because you're going to do better doesn't mean that that's necessarily the right decision to make for you. Because sometimes if you're willing to do it once, twice, three times, you're going to get exactly what you want and you're going to be much happier with it. It's going to certainly be involved to get there. But if that's what what drives you and if you are able to do that, then maybe that's the right decision. So, So I think this is something where you really got to look at all angles and think about not just chance of success, but how does that compare to the time the financial the emotional that goes into it and what's going to be what will best serve you for for getting pregnant.
2: So another thing I want to mention, I you know, of course we're all we're all concerned about, you know, number of eggs, but we all know that quality and quantity are not always the same things and I would rather fight a quantity battle especially on the IVF ground any day over a quality battle. And the one thing that you mentioned, I mean it's sounding like you may be like a fragile x Intermediate carrier, not necessarily a premutation carrier, but there are some pretty good articles out there that do show that people who are intermediate and especially premutation carriers that they do have poor IVF outcomes. And so, if you go through your first cycle and you don't get the result that you want, having a good conversation with your doctor and potentially a, a genetic counselor might be helpful to. Uh, you know, really help you figure out that, um, that next step of, do do I keep on going with my own eggs knowing not only do I have diminished ovarian reserve, but I have diminished ovarian reserve with this fragile X thing added on top that, that may be making it even harder for us to get to the outcome we want. So that that's another piece of the puzzle. Um, but there, there are a, a few good articles about that. And so it might be something for you to dis- discuss with your doctor. Agreed. Okay. Let's see. Oh, I like this one. Um, can you talk about vitamins or supplements r- recommended during IVF and how is each beneficial are also, are these vitamins and supplements also beneficial for someone who does not have her ovaries and is planning on using donor embryos or do you have different recommendations for these women?
0: So vitamins are kind of tricky because there's not a lot of randomized perspective studies about fertility and vitamins. We get, I think, we all get this question a lot from a lot of different patients, and I think the NIH right now is really big on funding projects that involve doing scientific research to look at reproduction and vitamins. But we just don't have a lot of data. I think you know there's several that I recommend. The one I go to a lot is coenzyme Q10 or CoQ10 for short. Um, And the reason I sort of go to that is my, you know, uh, you know, obviously everybody needs to be on prenatal vitamins, et cetera, but the next one would be coenzyme Q10 because there's some biologic plausibility to why it might be beneficial. You know, the egg is the most important cell in your body that we're concerned with when it comes to reproduction. And so we, you know, the cell, the egg cell is stored with two sets of chromosomes. And so every month when you ovulate, all of a sudden your egg has to wake up. However old you are, if you're 36, it's 36 years old, has to wake up after 36 years and it has to divide in two. So half of the chromosomes have to go one direction, half have to go the other to make way for the sperm to penetrate the egg and for your husband or your partner to give the component to, to create the baby. And so coenzyme Q10, we think, may help with cell division. It may help the mitochondria, um, the powerhouse of the cell, help with cell division and basically help the cell divide in two and specifically the chromosomes divide into. And so we hope that that may help a little bit more with having genetically normal embryos. So that's kind of my number one. Carrie, what's what's your what supplement would you choose? Or supplements.
1: I typically do CoQ10 because all the other ones I'm not real crazy about. So DHEA. There was a relatively recent study showing that that actually doesn't do anything. It got some traction a while ago. Yeah, everything that's old
0: is new again. It was an old one, and then it came back, and now it's gone
1: out. Yeah, now it's no longer in style. Um, I think human growth hormone is one is a supplemental medication that gets a lot of traction. Um, that's not a vitamin. That is a several thousand dollar medication. Um, And that's probably for another episode because that doesn't quite fall. And I think what this person is asking, you know, I go with the standard routine prenatal vitamins, but honestly, there's really no data to show that a whole lot of this stuff makes a huge difference. And so that means that I don't really object to you being on most things, but I also am not going to tell you, go spend your hard-earned money and the effort it takes every day to pop another pill to go get something else. What about you, Susan? Anything you really particularly like?
2: So I have a couple of things. Um, I'm a big fan of vitamin D supplementation. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I usually recommend that too.
2: The fact that I mean, realistically, about half of us are deficient in vitamin D. And I think there's plenty of, there's plenty of evidence outside of fertility to say that we should probably be taking vitamin D. Vitamin D
0: is kind of like this, the the wonder drug now. It it fixes everything.
2: It is kind of the wonder (laughs) drug, especially for our PCOS patients. I mean, I think there's Decent data to say that, you know, in somebody who has PCOS and vitamin D deficient, they are going to have a harder time conceiving. What what dose do you recommend usually? What do you tell your patients? I usually have patients take 2,000 IUs daily.
0: Yeah, I say 1,000 or 2,000 IU.
2: It's enough that if you're deficient, you're going to get high enough. And if you're not deficient, you're just going to be in that beautiful little green zone. And so it's going to be enough, but not too much. Um, I hardly, I don't usually prescribe, you know, like that 50,000. Unit thing yeah, yeah. that you do once a week. I don't ever. I'm just like go buy it. a you know over the counter. Or I, I'm a big Theralogics fan, but um, I think they have good quality control, and that's the reason I like Inositol's for PCOS patients. I mean, I've had a reasonable amount of people who I you know I counsel them and. They get on their inositol and all of a sudden they ovulate and get pregnant without me doing anything. So, you know, I, I want you to get pregnant no matter how it happens, whether I'm like actively doing something, if my actively doing something was suggesting inositol, that's great. Um, so those are, those are my big things, but the biggest thing is, I mean, seriously, I mean, it sounds so obvious, but take your prenatal vitamins. Okay. Mm -hmm. Prenatal vitamins are not going to help you get pregnant, which I mean, but they're going to help you have a healthy pregnancy. And some of the best data shows that if you're on them for at least three months before conceiving, you're going to have better outcomes.
0: Well, and to that end, I usually recommend an additional supplement of folic acid because it, to use Carrie's analogy, it's like dumping water in the ocean. You can't get too much folic acid. And, you know, you know, not that we have a lot of patients with multiples, but we do sometimes. And so sometimes we don't know that for a little while since we know folic acid prevents birth defects. It prevents um, neural tube defects. And so, you know, if you get a little bit too much of it, it just comes out in your urine. If you get extra, that's great. Hopefully it'll help decrease the risk of neural tube defects. And of course, prenatal vitamins also have folic acid in them, but you know, if you're depleted, it doesn't hurt to get more.
2: All right. Hi, Fertility Docs. I came across your podcast and love it. I myself are in the process of fertility treatment. I was diagnosed with lean PCOS, but no, in fact, it is hypothalamic amenorrhea. Have been a ballerina, parentheses, I know, how stereotypical. (laughs)
0: Prototypical patient with hapilembic amenorrhea. Uh
2: And go through disordered eating for many years. I was put on the pill to get a cycle, but a year ago when my partner and I decided to try for a baby, I just had no period at all. Anyway, fast forward to February, I began treatment on letrozole, but my body does not respond well. My follicle is very slow to develop and my uterine lining quite thin. First IUI done last month didn't work. And now I'm trying Clomid for the first time to see if I would respond better. Meanwhile, I stopped exercising in the weight room and quit swimming. I only do Pilates three to four times a week at home and try to eat more. My doctor talked to me about the gonadotropins. This is our next step. My question is, how does gonadotropin work? I find very little information on this type of treatment for HA. And second question, how can I know if reducing exercise and eating more is helping my body since letrozole clomid kind of blunts everything? Thanks so much. Heart, heart. Okay.
1: So this is, this is always a fascinating topic because of all the physiology that goes into it. And so this one, like just talking about this one,
0: reproductive endocrinologists just love this topic. We love
1: it.
2: She's about to jump out of her seat. <laughs> it warms my heart. I just, I get so
1: excited. Um, But what we typically look at is whenever you're taking a gonadotropin, that is a direct replacement for what your brain should be producing to talk to your ovaries. So normally your pituitary produces FSH and LH, and those travel down to your ovaries and they say, hello, wake up, make me an egg. (laughs) And so all of those little antral follicles start to grow. One of them is going to get bigger and ovulate and have the potential for a pregnancy and all the rest die off. And that's normal. And so when you have hypothalamic amenorrhea, what happens is that the the brain is not sending out those FSH and LH signals, FSH usually being the key one. And so your ovaries never get instructions. So when you're taking Clomid or Letrozole, that serves to... um, boost your pituitary to produce more of those hormones. Now in hypothalamic amenorrhea, it can be really pretty tough to get a response from Clomin and letrozole. So if you do get a response, fabulous, but if you don't, I would probably not waste a whole lot more time on it and I wouldn't worry about it. It's got clomiphene's great because it's cheap, but if it doesn't hit the problem you need addressed, then don't mess around with it for very long. Um, what the gonadotropins do is those are injections that directly replace what your brain is not sending out. And so it's a, it's a direct signal to the ovaries that say, okay, guys, wake up start growing things and let's do this. Um, And so when you are doing that kind of cycle, when you are pairing it with an insemination, you got to be really careful because we want you to have a baby. We do not want you to have a basketball team.
2: You are walking a very fine line,
1: very fine line of getting one egg versus getting 12 eggs and having a full sports team in your uterus at the same time, which is absolutely not what we're going for. So Oftentimes when we need to turn to gonadotropins, like I'm pretty quick to go to IVF because the gonadotropins themselves are very expensive and you want to maximize what you're doing to get the result you want. You're you're not going through fertility treatment just for the sake of fertility treatment. You're going through fertility treatment to get a baby and you want to do that safely. And so if you're doing it with an IUI, it's really low and slow. It's a lot of injections. It's a lot of ultrasounds. It is an uncertain timeline. You put the sperm in, the success rate's pretty decent. I mean, it's it's usually in the area of 20% or higher. Which is
0: pretty good for fertility. <laughs> yeah, it's
1: it's good in the fertility world, but you, you gotta be careful so that you don't end up with more babies than is safe.
0: Yeah, and one other thing that our listener had mentioned is she said, you know, I do exercise and I've really backed off on my exercise is that going to make a difference? How long will it take? The problem with that is, you know, certainly backing off on exercise, gaining weight, those are all things that your body is kind of looking at going, well, okay, she's got enough energy to, you know, make a baby and have a baby. But the problem is, it's just, it's hard to know when or if that's going to turn around. And, you know, it's rare for it to turn around any sooner than, in my experience, four to six months. And sometimes even then I'll see a patient back and they'll be like, I've made all these changes, I'm eating more, I'm exercising less, and I still am not ovulating. And then pretty quickly, like Carrie said, the good news about hypothalamic amenorrhea is we know what the problem is. And if we just supply the hormone that's needed, a lot of times your success rate is equivalent to somebody your own age. It's just you, you, you have a missing part of that reproductive axis. And once we supply that, provided we can get you know an egg to develop, which we usually do, your chances are, are just as good as somebody else your own age.
2: So another thing you mentioned was the history of eating disorders. And there there's some, again, relatively good evidence that people with eating disorders who develop hypothalamic amenorrhea and we're dealing with this years later, that essentially your brain has kind of gotten reprogrammed. In a bad way. <laughs> in a bad way in that with you making these lifestyle changes, you're actually probably less likely to end up with the spontaneous conception you're hoping for than somebody who had not had an eating disorder. And so... To our listeners who have had eating disorders, what I'm really trying to say is let your doctor know if that's in your history, especially if they don't ask. It's actually on my intake form, so I ask every single person, Um, but it actually can be a very important part of the puzzle because it's like, why aren't I responding? Why aren't I responding? You know, I'm doing all the things that I should be. That may be the key that we might need to, you know, use our own little magical tools to make, make the baby happen. Okay. Y'all want one more? Yeah, let's do at least one more. Yeah. Okay. Hi, I'm 27 and in good health. My husband and I have struggled to conceive naturally. We've had two chemical pregnancies this year. For someone that struggles with very early pregnancy loss, what would be the typical treatment that results in a successful pregnancy?
0: Well, the positive is you're getting pregnant. And, you know, at 27, you know, it's kind of like pulling the lever on the slot machine. Again, I'm taking a note from Carrie out there in Las Vegas, you know. I have never gone to a slot machine. I would just like to make that perfectly
1: clear. (laughs) (laughs) I'm
0: not a gambling
1: girl. I have never spent a dime.
0: Good to know. But you know, it's kind of one of those things for a 27 year old, two biochemical pregnancies, certainly not good news, but it tells us that the sperm and the egg are getting together, that the embryo is at least starting to implant. Um, So, you know, my bent on things would be, I would say, you know, if you've not had any fertility treatment, I would think about trying to speed things up maybe a little bit more by either doing an insemination or or doing fertility medicine. You know, there's certainly more aggressive things that we can do, but really short of doing in vitro fertilisation, there's not really a way to test the embryo and 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 look at its genetics and because we know if we if we transfer a genetically normal embryo that you would have a better chance probably of having a healthy pregnancy. And so you know I guess for a twenty seven year old I would sort of lean toward just trying maybe being a little bit more aggressive to speed it up. But other than that, I don't know that I would do a ton. You know, I mean, two or more losses, sometimes we do a recurrent pregnancy loss workup. And that would something certainly be something that we might want to consider. Not everybody considers biochemical pregnancies as true losses that we should do a workup on. But we can certainly consider that as well. What do you think, Carrie? I mean, I think I usually
1: offer my patients who've had two losses, even if they're biochemicals, you know, the the recurrent pregnancy loss panel, but it's always with the disclaimer of insurance won't necessarily cover it. And it is an expensive panel to run. So a lot of times we'll do, do some support. We'll talk about, do we want to be more aggressive? Like this is what an IUI can offer you. This is what IVF can offer you, particularly with genetic testing. We talk about some of the basic support that is, cheap things like a baby aspirin, which doesn't have a whole lot of data, but a lot of us do anyway. Um, extra progesterone, same deal doesn't necessarily have amazing data behind it, but it's like throwing water at the ocean. So why the hell not those types of things, but a lot of it's going to lie in your history. A lot of it's going to see, rely on, can we modify any risk factors? You know, certainly most fertility patients don't come in with a history of heavy drug, alcohol, tobacco use, but some do. And so you know, stop the things that we know are going to cause a problem. And really and truly, a lot of the times I see patients who have recurrent pregnancy losses, they come and they see me and my staff jokes that if you sit in the big white comfy chairs in my office, you're going to get pregnant. <laughs> so a lot of them will not sit in my office for that reason. <laughs> um, you know, there's, there's no truth to that. There's nothing magic in those chairs, but I do think sometimes talking to someone and relieving some of the stress about it, being heard, and just talking about what are the options and just playing the sheer waiting game of if it's happening, there's a a pretty decent chance that eventually something's going to stick. And so it means more, more pain and more stress to get there, but that you're still pretty likely to get there.
0: Yeah. The prognosis is pretty good.
1: Prognosis is good. You're 27. Like hang in there. You can do it. Get a good therapist, like help you help you get through it. Cause honestly, that's going to, what that will be what stops you from trying more than the physical is just the emotional. Oh my God, this sucks. I don't want to do this again. Yeah,
2: I'm a big proponent of a recurrent pregnancy loss evaluation after two. I mean, I, as somebody who does insurance reviews, um, if it does get rejected, that is something that you can actually fight. And I think you have a reasonable chance of getting it covered. But I also do a very intentional recurrent pregnancy loss evaluation. So the things that I look at are really the ones that have the most evidence. I want to get chromosomes on both partners. I want to look for antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. I want to check thyroid prolactin. And then I'll do a basic fertility evaluation, make sure the lining of the uterus looks good, make sure we don't have any polyps or fibroids that are interfering with implantation, check ovarian reserve, those types of things. I think there is power and knowledge. At the point that you're seeking out fertility care, you're wanting to know why. So important statistics to know when you're looking for why is that 50% of the time um, we do find an answer, okay? Um, If we don't find an answer, it's probably because the embryos were chromosomally abnormal, which we know is very, very, very common, which does help us sometimes in making a decision on on what to go to. But if we do find something abnormal as well, realize that 30% of the time, there's more than one thing going on. Okay. With that being said, we also know that most people with recurrent pregnancy loss, if they just kept on trying on their own would eventually be successful. However, we can't tell you if that's going to be on pregnancy number three or on pregnancy number six, seven, eight. And a lot of that is a heart decision. Okay. You are the one who has to sit there and say, yes, I can take this again. And, I have occasionally had patients who have chosen that path. I would say that's more the exception than the rule. And then I have other people who are like, okay, well, let's maybe take this baby step, you know, and 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 do this. And then I have other people who are like, I want to make sure I have a chromosomally normal embryo, so we're doing IVF with PGTS, uh, you you know. So I I think it's there's a variety of things you can do. But if you want knowledge, I think there's some things you can get out there.
0: One thing I would say about insurance, at least in the state of Tennessee, we actually have a lot of insurance plans that don't cover any fertility testing. So it might be worthwhile if you're thinking about going down that line. I mean, certainly our offices can help you with that, but it might be worthwhile to find out if your insurance plan covers fertility testing, because if they don't cover fertility testing and you get these tests done, they're just going to say, well, we don't cover it from the get-go. I mean, you can't really force them to pay for it if they've already clearly stated they don't do fertility testing. So I would just check that out before. You know, because sometimes you can have you know, thousand two thousand dollars worth of testing done for recurrent pregnancy loss workup.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: All right.
1: Well, it was lovely to hang out with both of you ladies this afternoon, as it always is. And to our audience, we are always delighted to have you join us. And thank you for listening. Be sure to tune in next week for more. Be sure to subscribe. Be
0: sure to leave us a review in iTunes. Um, we are very grateful for those, and we would love to hear from you. And you can also visit us on fertility.suncensor.com to submit specific questions. Um, all of the questions will be answered anonymously, just like we did today for the Ask the Doc segment. So don't hold back, and we look forward to hearing from you.
2: As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Bye, y'all. Bye. Bye. Bye.